As you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, reading verses 4 through 15. That's on page 746 of the Black Pew Bible in front of you. This is our third opportunity to examine this passage. But we'll actually start reading in verse 3. Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your prophets, your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight from, by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. And, O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy 
And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Here in Daniel 9, we've been studying this master class on prayer, this exemplary prayer of confession. From the great Old Testament prophet, the only man I know of who's condemned to death for his prayer life, unwilling to stop praying to the Lord as God, willing instead to go to the lion's den. We've been asking the question, what does Daniel have that I don't have? Because I don't have that kind of prayer commitment. I don't have this kind of vibrant prayer life. My prayers of confession aren't quite like this and I assume yours aren't either. We've been asking why that is. And in his master class on prayer a couple sermons ago, we, we examined his approach, that it started with reading his Bible, reading the book of Jeremiah, and it started with a right and humble approach. It started with right theology, seeing God's great transcendence and also his great imminence, his great condescension. And last time we asked, you know, what does Daniel see or believe about sin, this thing he's confessing that perhaps we don't see. And we sought to identify at least five lies that we believe about sin. We often believe that sin is relative, that sin is natural, it's therapeutic perhaps, it's harmless, it's temporal. And we said that a right understanding of sin, that sin is destroying everyone and everything that you love, and that sin is actually objective, deeply unnatural, in fact, insane, always harmful, and with eternal consequences, ought to make us like Daniel, ready to confess our sins unreservedly. No caveats, no explanations, no excuses. Now, in this third master class with Daniel on confession of sin, I don't think the genius of his prayer is found in the structure I don't think it's uh, particularly found in the flourishes of rhetoric or even in the, any kind of poetic metaphor that holds the prayer together. I think it's in the conceptual framework. The three points of our sermon tonight will be to examine Daniel's biblical anthropology, his biblical theology, and his biblical soteriology, the three doctrines of man, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation as they are teased and woven in through his sermon. Having these conceptual keys, I hope, will make us like Daniel in our own prayers of confession. Believing what Daniel believes, we ought to pray like Daniel prays. That's our hope as we examine this prayer together. Now, to begin with biblical anthropology, this is much of what we've implicitly covered in some ways in previous weeks. Our anthropological assumptions, that is, of our own age, we, what we believe about what it means to be human, who we are, 
why we are here, where we came from, where we're going, what we're made of, the doctrine of man, is where so much of our cultural battles happen today. And the dogma of our modern secular age is that we, of course, but accidents of history, part of a materialist universe, explainable only by, quote-unquote, scientifically numerical calculations. We are just what we are. There is no God in charge of you. There is no great design for your life. We are just conscious, and you are here to make of it what you can make of it. We, each of us, are basically autonomous individuals needing to find for ourselves our own way. Simon and Garfunkel, I think, sang it well. I am a rock. I am an island. A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. What a bunch of baloney. And perhaps our individualism is the most obvious thing about our civilization as a whole. You know, our, our Radio songs are are rarely about us. They're always about me. We live in a social media age that preys upon our natural proclivity to narcissism and self-promotion. And I hope you heard it when you read the text, the antithetical contrast between the way we often speak and express ourselves individually and the way in which Daniel prays corporately. The first thing you ought to see about his anthropological assumptions, his doctrine of man, is that it's corporate. He's speaking of a congregation. He's not only speaking of himself. This is fascinating for a number of reasons. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. You can hear it highlighted there. He says, We, verse 6, have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, in case you hadn't, you know, hadn't pressed it in hard enough, who all is included. He says, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery which they have committed against you. And verse 8 only pushes it further. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, we have sinned against you. Fascinating, I think, first, as we've already said, because of the contrast with our own secular age, individualized age. But secondly, fascinating to me because what exactly does Daniel have to confess? If I've been following along the story in Daniel, I'd argue he's one of the most righteous men, one of the most faultless men, Bible characters in all the Bible. I think of perhaps Joseph, you've got to try to find, did Joseph sin anywhere? Or even perhaps Stephen, or they're portrayed as almost faultless men. Of course, Jesus, Daniel is on that Mount Rushmore of faultless people in the Bible, and yet here he is, clearly confessing his own sin. He says it in verse 20. He says, I'm confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel. Now, how and why does Daniel assume himself to be implicated in the corporate sin of Israel? This is fascinating to me because I find it rather convenient, quite nice to separate myself, at least conceptually in my own mind, from our national sins. I don't particularly feel complicit or implicated in the corporate sins of the United States of America. Neither I nor my family was here during slavery times in America. I don't know anyone in my family who was complicit in the national sins of abortion or whatever sin we might bring to the table. I find it quite easy to separate myself from my, our 
you might say, corporate guilt that Daniel seems to assume here. Why doesn't Daniel do the same thing I do? Why doesn't Daniel feel so freely and unambiguously, or why does he so freely and unambiguously identify with the sins of his forefathers when I do not? And I think Daniel lies, the answer lies in Daniel's rightful, biblical, covenantal anthropology. That is, Daniel readily identifies himself with Israel's sin because Daniel knows what it means to be in covenant with God and with the multiple levels that entails. Daniel assumes, you see, a covenantal universe. That when God creates all things of nothing in the space of six days, you come to Genesis 3, there is the implicit covenant of works. He assumes what the Apostle Paul clearly explains in Romans chapter 5, that in, in Adam all die. That is, Adam stands as a representative, as a covenant federal head, that when Adam is eating of the fruit, the drama for us as we read is that we ought to see ourselves in Adam. He is acting on our behalf. What he does, we happen to be responsible for, so that when he eats, his guilt is not only upon him, but all that he represents. It's corporate. And the curse that comes to him comes to him and all whom he represents. See, the Bible assumes this covenantal federal headship. Adam represents all humanity. The kings of the nations represent the whole nation. The father represents the whole family. You might call this patriarchy. But whatever you want to call it, it's unavoidably one of the concepts that holds the whole Bible together. You might say it's like a tectonic plate. It's assumed just below the surface. As you read the story of Abraham, Abraham acts representative of all Israel and all that would follow him. The kings of Israel, we were given the reports, just as we uh, heard from Dr. Grant this morning, of the judges and the kings. The judges and the kings act, and they act with all the nation on their coattails. All that they do includes them. You know, I uh, grew up in a small town and played small town high school football. And as a freshman, as we went and played the last game of the year, our rivalry game against the closest high school 20 minutes away, Blossburg, the seniors on the team made it clear that it was tradition to get off the bus and before we put on our pads to go over and um, to urinate upon the goalpost of the opposing team, to, to show our despising hatred for them and to, to make a sign over their, their Blossburgness. And uh, that was the tradition I was told. And uh, we came back my junior year when I was a team captain. Now, I did not participate in this tradition. And yet after the game, after they had thoroughly defeated us that junior year, I was informed that our following season, my senior season as team captain and quarterback, would be in jeopardy if someone did not apologize and make amends for this lack of sportsmanship. And so although I did not participate as representative of the team, I did confess the sins of my team and seek to make amends with Blossburg School District and seek to uh, cover those things. Whether we find it uh, foreign or not, this is the way our world works, implicitly or explicitly. Representative heads, it's the way the Bible works, it's the way our world works, whether we like it or not. We can't help it, we can't be free of it. 
See, this corporateness of being human, of being in covenant with God, your nation, your family, your church, these assumptions in Daniel and ought to be in us allow him to pray like this, making corporate confession of sin. Now, of course, there are also distinctions to be made. We might say that in history, God deals with nations and churches and families. The way destinies fall out in time, we know, happens corporately. And yet, at the same time, paradoxically, the Bible speaks of the Lord dealing with each of us individually. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 20, explains it as clearly as can be. He says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Paul puts it clearly, Romans 14, 12. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. We might make the distinction in our minds between the covenantal unity as it works out in our destinies and history, and yet also the individual end times, judgment day before the throne of God where we all must give an account. Both of those things are true. Daniel clearly understands both of them. In eternity, on judgment day, it will come for each of us. All serious Bible-minded believers need to have the distinction clearly in mind. Our destiny as family, nation, church, tied together. And yet, the call of the gospel goes forward to whosoever believes, no matter your family, your church, or your nation. Both of those things are true, and Daniel understands the fullness of our biblical revelation, and we ought to too. A biblical anthropology, you see, is both corporate and covenantal in Daniel's confession of prayer. Now, the section conceptual key to Daniel's confession of sin we must have in our minds is, again, theology. We mentioned this in a previous sermon, but as we work through the sermon further, we see further themes of Daniel's doctrine of God we must observe and appreciate and apply together. Now, as we read through the prayer, we should notice, number one, as we see in verse four, the constancy of Daniel's God. Look at verse four. It says, he's the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Look down at verse 11b. It says, the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. See, the assumption about God throughout this prayer is that God is unchanged, and his word is completely unchanged. He has spoken, and it's the same from when he spoke it, but Israel has been fluid. God constant, Israel fluid. It's not God who changed, but Israel. He has been dependable. After all, that is his very nature. It is who he reveals himself to be in the most explicit of his revelations, even to Moses at the bush. He is the I am who I am. He is not the one who was, who is somehow still becoming. No, he is the constant one. And as I think of Daniel in his life, I have to imagine this to have to be a, one of Daniel's favorite attributes of God. Daniel, who has had a life of no constancy seemingly at all, born and taken into exile, abducted from his family into the wizardry school of Nebuchadnezzar, rising to the top of the wizardry school and then to the top of the government under Nebuchadnezzar, only to be forgotten 
and then reemerged under Belteshazzar and raised again under, after Darius. Daniel's life, a life of passing revolutions one after the other, which I find similar to our own time. I'm only 34, and I think of the amazing transformation in my own young life, whether you're speaking in terms of technology, cassette tapes, DVDs, VHS, all things of the past, my collections utterly worthless now as we stream all of our content one way or another. Or even I think of the, the, the end game as we seem to approach the sexual revolution, things that were illicit when I was a young man 10 years, 15 years ago, now paraded through every public library in America. The world in a media-saturated age is dizzying in a way I think previous generations would struggle to imagine. And indeed, as I do ministry to young adults, the complaint continually is one of anxiety, and perhaps that's part of being in your 20s of all times, I, I don't know, but I, it seems to be a crushing anxiety. And the need for a constant God is a gospel. It is a good news to say with the psalmist, as he does in Psalm 61, he is the rock that is higher than I. That's good news that Daniel needs to believe, that I need to believe, and it's the basis of his prayer. He appeals, appeals to a constant God, an unchanging one. But secondly, he appeals to a God who's not only constant, but also compassionate. Look at verse 9. It says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And that word for mercy in the Hebrew can equally be translated either merciful or compassionate. It's but the same word nearly every time we see it in the text. In verse 17, it happens again. He makes his appeal. Verse 17, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy or compassion. See, this God of Daniel that is compassionate, this attribute of which Daniel makes a plea and confesses his sin, his compassion is the very way that God himself reveals himself on Mount Sinai to Moses, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His own self-description put there as a God constant and compassionate. It makes all the difference to know your God is compassionate, not aloof, not far off, not sleeping, not uncaring, one who sees suffering and responds. Before we are told he is the I am who I am, before we are told he is the Lord, the Lord, the God compassionate, we are shown the nature of his compassion. Exodus chapter 2. He is the one who when Israel cried out, Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is one of the prime, it has to be one of the primary ways the people of God are meant to think of God. And it comes up in one of my favorite, I think, most hilarious passages in all the Bible. It's a couple pages over. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. Remember in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord had relented from his disaster upon Nineveh. This is one of the funniest passages in all the Bible to me. Jonah 4, 1 said, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful or compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) What a line. All the prophets know it. It's the labor of Moses to tell us again and again. It's the assumption of Daniel here. It's the basis upon which he makes his plea. His God is constant and his God is compassionate. And third, the thing we can't miss about Daniel's God is that he is perhaps ironically or paradoxically constant, compassionate, and concerned for his own glory. This is pronounced. I, I can't imagine you read this text and miss the way in which Daniel makes his plea in verses 16 through 20, again and again, appealing to the Lord's own nature and his own glory. I think verse 19 is the, is the best example of it, very, the last verse. Oh, Lord, hear, he says, verse 19. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? For your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is not a unique plea made in the Bible. It's the same basis that Moses makes his plea for Israel in Exodus 32. And it's the same way Jesus teaches us to pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, the first things we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, how would be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done? And I, I imagine there are some here who perhaps roll their eyes and struggle and wrestle with this seemingly... Uh, self-centered God. Why does God need to have his arm twisted to take action on behalf of his people? Does he have to have his own self-interest aroused, you know, to to do some good? Isn't so much Christianity about being humble and servant-hearted? Like, how does this add together? I I don't think it's overly complicated. I don't think it's too much to wrap our minds around. Because the very nature of the universe in which God has created is that God's Glory and man's good are intertwined. This is the thing we drill into the minds of our children. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man's highest good, his chief end, his telos, his purpose, is the glory of God. The two are different sides of the same coin. Dr. Piper has so memorably taught that, in fact, in the same way, the chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. The most loving, the highest purpose in all the universe is the glory of God because that is the very purpose of all that is. So when Daniel appeals to the Lord's concern for his own glory, it's just the other side of appealing to his own compassion for his people. In fact, you you see the way it's even worded in verse 19. Your city, your people, your name, all one idea, one concept. Daniel shows us, you see. Briefly, as we walk through this prayer, a prayer of confession with a biblical anthropology, this biblical theology that has a God who is constant compassion and concerned for his own glory. And finally, and briefly, and perhaps most importantly, with a biblical soteriology. Soteriology being a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. Look at verse 18, perhaps the linchpin of the whole prayer, I believe. 
Daniel says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We went to Disney World with the help of my parents a little over a year ago, and we were having a great first day. And we went to the Animal Kingdom earlier in the morning, and we went back to the hotel, and the kids took a nap, and we jumped in the pool, and we're going to go to Epcot in the afternoon and evening. And the whole family gets through the turnstiles, and the, the lights turn green. We walk through, except for Ginny. And we're wondering, why, why isn't Ginny coming? Why isn't she allowed in? What's wrong? And of course, the Disney attendant comes over and explains that somehow Ginny didn't have the park hopper pass that we all had. We all could hop from park to park within Disney World. And uh, she proceeded to explain that uh, there was a certain cost to uh, a larger park hopper pass, and uh, the cost was more than money than Jenny had, and I think more money than I had as well to, to continue our adventure together. And I, I thought maybe I could make an appeal based upon the character of the company of Disney that at least Disney used to want to be, a family company for children, and then my three-year-old could qualify as a little younger age and come in graciously based upon you know, appeal to their mercy. Not the case. <laughs> but as we come to the throne of God and to the pearly gates of heaven, the price that's quoted for entry into the kingdom of heaven is more money than you have and more money than anybody has, more righteousness than anyone could provide. The only appeal that can be made is the appeal that's made here based upon the mercy, the compassion of God. This is the way Jesus explains things. His opening line of the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit being those who are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, nothing in their righteousness bank account to commend themselves to God with. They must appeal to someone else's righteousness. John 6 Jesus having another repartee with the Pharisees, and they think they're going to catch him. They ask him in verse 28, oh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That is, uh, the works of righteousness, those, those works that make us right with God. And I assume they're expecting some good Jewish answer from Jesus. You know, you live a kosher life, and you follow the Ten Commandments, and you, you keep the law. And Jesus is answered, John 6, 29. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Not in your doings, not in your righteousness, which is but filthy rags, but in the righteousness and the mercy of God. Do nothing. Believe. The Apostle Paul explains it as clearly as can be. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Horatius Bonar puts it the best. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. 
Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. The doctrine of salvation, the soteriology of Daniel that he glances on here in verse 13 is the linchpin, is the key to our confession of our sin, to being able to confess our sins as Daniel does passionately, even joyously, seeing it as what it is, an essential part of the Christian life. There's no magical structure here, no magical word order or word choice. What there is is the conceptual framework of a biblical understanding of man, a biblical understanding of God and of salvation and how it works. Not based upon our own righteousness, but based upon his. This is what ought to make confession of sin something we love to do. We can't wait to get together and do. Something we do all the time, in the morning, in the evening, and in between all the day. Confessing our sins, because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that we would be those who love to confess our sins that we would not be those who grow a bitter heart towards our evangelical upbringing that spoke about sin all the time, that made us feel shameful and bad about the sin of our lives. May no child of this church ever have any confusion about the nature of you, O Lord, and our relationship with you, for you are a God compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, offering freedom and forgiveness and acceptance to whosoever believes. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.